Hello everyone, it's February 26th, 2019. This week we're talking about the Bereshit Moonlander and the upcoming Crew Dragon Abort test that will be riding the same booster that launched Bereshit. We also got a data relay on Hypergolics. So put on your hazmat suits and lift off. And we have cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 199 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So... One more episode to go, then we hit 200. I know, right? Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, and the, I mean, we have like a little bit of a special thing planned for next week, but mm-hmm. like, not, I mean, not anything really crazy. It's probably just my laziness, but I'm kind of fine with that. I don't want to do anything too crazy. It's like, <laughs> yeah. let's just, let's just pretend it's a, I mean, if we, if we make it to 500, maybe then we can, you know, go wild, but <laughs> 200, ah, and there are so many, well, I don't know how many, but there's so many podcasts that are well beyond 200 episodes. It's like this day and age, it's not much of a milestone. I mean, it is something actually, but yeah. still. We're hey, just going to make it well, classy, but nice, you know? Not, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, we're we're going to record in tuxedo t-shirts. Yeah. Um, no, like for, for me, this is a big deal because for me to actually have worked on a project for this long is kind of insane. Like this is like, David, I've told you this before, like other than my wife, my relationship with you is the longest term relationship I've ever had. Like, you know, as far as like it being intentional about talking to each other every week Mm -hmm. and like actually building things like that's insane. Yeah, and for me, it's obviously like a lot of hard work is because I have to do the editing, and so that's no fun. But at the same time, it's like the thought of not doing it, like it, it actually kind of terrifies me. I mean, uh-huh. I, I don't know why. It's like I'm doing this one thing that's worth something, you know, and I guess maybe we'll talk about that more next week. But it's like, you know, I can't not do it. So, yeah, it's kind of grown to become something important, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, we have a data relay coming up, so maybe we should just get right to it. Yeah. We'll keep mm. it under two hours. Not a bad idea. So let's get into this week in spaceflight history. So we had a bunch of, well, not a bunch. We had several, I think, wrong answers. But we had a couple of correct guesses in, so this yeah. was a really good clue. Well, let, let me start with one of the wrong guesses. So this is from Ian Soddy. Um, just at the end, he says, please talk about Starship Bunsen. So let's mention Starship Bunsen real quick. I posted links in Twitter and Reddit, but it, I mean, it bears mentioning on the show so we talked about how the raptor engine is a full flow staged combustion engine and i think it was i think it was ian that said uh made the joke that it it becomes the world's largest bunsen burner and Mm -hmm. oh my god people tore me to pieces oh well there are larger engines and it's like no no no. this one's actually like flying almost (laughs) We're we're very close to it actually flying, so whatever. It's a huge Bunsen burner, so I did a T-shirt design um, that's a starship and a Bunsen burner overlaid on top of each other in different colors. But there you go. I talked about it. Uh, there's a link in Reddit if you're interested. Our two correct guesses are La Loving and Gabriel Norris. They both guessed the correct event, but didn't tell me why the clue matched. But, you know, they still got it. Mm. Um, so the clue was um, musical chairs. I initially wanted it to say, uh, what's it called? It's a uh, fire drill when you come up to a park. Oh. Oh, yeah. At, a, at an is intersection? It, is, yeah. Is it like a Chinese fire drill? I don't know. Uh, it, it was like, eh, I don't particularly love the tendency of Americans to call anything that's slightly backwards or weird 
uh, Chinese, like a, what it, what was it called in, in middle school when you cut somebody in front? It was a Chinese cut instead of cutting behind them in line. Oh, uh-huh. I think I remember that, maybe. Yeah. Vague, uh, vaguely, yeah. Yeah, it's just like, a, okay, we, we don't have to do that. Anyway, so this week in space flight history is the 26th of February, 2004. It was the first International Space Station EVA with no one inside the space station. Pretty cool. Um, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be quick here, but this happened during Expedition Eight. So back in 2004, obviously we were still building the space station. So let's talk about what it looked like back then. It was only four modules: Zvezda, Zarya, Unity, and Destiny from back to front. And then we had uh, the Z1 and S0 trusses, and then we also had S1 and P1 trusses. So that means that there was only one solar wing and it was mounted on top of the Z1 truss pointing to Zenith, pointing away from the Earth. Kind of a weird configuration, but, you know, don't imagine this EVA is happening in a full space station. This is the the mini, like halfway there space station. <laughs> Compared to what we have today. Um, so because uh, it was a different time, we also had a very different looking crew rotation. Um, we didn't have, I believe we've added life support uh, systems that weren't around back then. Don't quote me on that. But at, at any rate, the most people that we had on station around this time uh, was four. Um, and that's, I checked the few expeditions before this and a few after it and it seems to be true Mm -hmm. so basically it's two person crews with a few days overlap where you'd have four people and then the two people would leave um so at the time the only people on station were michael full and alexander Caleri, and they went out and did an eva with nobody inside the station and that that seems kind of scary i guess but it's actually Mm -hmm. really cool that we had enough confidence in this vehicle that we were okay not only flying it without people in it but flying it with people crawling around on the outside so the EVA was was pretty simple. Um, technically, it was in support of construction, but they didn't actually do any real construction tasks. They updated uh, sample materials in a microgravity experiment. Um, they picked up a Japanese experiment that was doing sample materials as well, but also um, a particle capture experiment where they were trying to capture micrometeoroids, which is pretty cool. And then they ended up having to cut the EVA short because Clary, his suit malfunctioned and uh, the I think it was the cooling loop went out. So basically he was just building up heat. So mm-hmm. it wasn't an emergency. They could get some work done, but, you know, they kind of had a, a shorter upper time limit on there. They had to cut out a couple tasks. One of them was another um, sample material experiment. But another one was they were going to remove retroreflectors. Um, that were being used by ATV for docking technology demonstration. Yeah, so they they ended up leaving them out there. I believe they went and picked them up later. Something about retroreflectors just makes me so happy. We put them on the moon. (laughs) I have a very expensive retroreflector in my work van uh, because I use it with um, basically a a surveyor's tool. Um, But every time I pick it up and I look in it, I just go, there's one of these on the moon. (laughs) Uh, Completely ignoring the fact that we also have retroreflectors in every single glued down reflector on the road. Mm -hmm. Like all the they're all retro reflectors it's you know a corner cube just a bunch of them all tied together but yeah that <laughs> that's just me being obsessed with a, a dumb little bit of technology um and then in the show notes uh there will be a photo that happened to be in the expedition 8 wikipedia page and it's just a gorgeous uh mosaic of uh mount everest and the mountains surrounding it 
and I thought it was really pretty, so I'm going to go ahead and include it. All right, well, awesome clue, and congratulations to the two listeners who got it, even though they didn't explain why, but okay. Well, they, um, <laughs> they explained why they got, they just guessed incorrectly, and that's okay. I mean, it, it wasn't a perfectly fit clue, but hey, it works. Okay, cool. What is our clue for next week? Next week in 1931, the clue is Barnstormer. Hmm. So it's 1931, so typically these might be the birth of somebody. I don't know. But uh, listeners, if you think you do, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF. And good luck. Good luck, everybody. Bereshit prepares to land on the moon. So this is the Israeli moon lander yeah. mm-hmm. that launched on a Falcon 9, I guess, just a couple days ago, along with some other stuff. And we might talk a little bit about some other things later involving the Falcon 9, Yeah, possibly. We, we it wasn't alone. <laughs> yeah. We will. Okay, so it's now in orbit. It is going to do six phasing loops where it's raising its apoapsis up. And, you know, the moon is not in the right place to hit yet, but as it phases around, they'll line up. On April 4th, they're going to capture into lunar orbit. They will be in lunar orbit for six days. And while they're there, they're going to be taking photos, uh, but they'll also be lowering their orbit. Eventually, they will get down to their final orbit before landing. Apollo went into a very a very circular orbit. It was eccentric, but it, it wasn't this eccentric. This is a very Kerbal Space Program way of doing things, where you go into a highly eccentric orbit, and then you spend all of your fuel landing. And the nice thing about this is it allows you to take a huge advantage of the Oberth effect, because you just have to lower your paraloon and then your apaloon, you can just kill all at once and just do one straight burn down to the surface. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, they're not going to do one straight burn. They're going to go into a landing trajectory and then do, I think, like two or three burns on the way down. Uh, but anyway, this final orbit that they're going to be aiming for is 15 by 197 kilometers or 9.3 by 122.4 miles. And that's going to like they're they're going to slowly work down to that and then from there um, they're going to land. Dennis, you had a little bit to say here. Uh, yeah, so I thought it was neat that they would get to use the uh, uh, Deep Space Network once they got into lunar orbit, and they uh, just did this in exchange for agreeing to install one of those NASA retro reflectors you love mm-hmm. oh so much, mm-hmm. <laughs> as well as uh, giving NASA a copy of the magnetometer data that it'll be taking on the surface. Uh, I always want DSN access to be in exchange for science, and that's so <laughs> cool. Um, so the once they get into this final orbit, they'll burn for landing, and it'll take them 20 minutes to go from orbit to landing. Their first attempt is going to be uh, on the 11th of April at 1530 UTC. They have the option to not only choose a different landing time, but a different landing location. They're going to be shooting some footage of their landing, their primary landing site. You know, I'm assuming that if they see something they don't like, that's going to be one of the things that'll possibly push them to a different uh, landing location. Mm-hmm. But their first choice is to land in Mare Serenitatis, um, which is the Sea of Serenity, I believe. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so on the way down, they'll be shooting footage a lot like the footage that we saw from Chang'e 4. And what's really cool is, you know, Space IL is a commercial company and they are therefore public oriented or PR oriented. And so they're going to try to get photos downloaded, processed, and released as soon as possible. They're saying within a couple hours of landing, which is really, really cool. I mean, this is seriously, this is the first commercial landing on the moon. This opens a new era. 
I mean, you know, nothing's going to change dramatically, but like, it is a new era. I don't want to say it, but it is a small step. Um, <laughs> all right, that's bad. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't yeah, mean yeah. it to be, but it, it actually is yeah. like you know, it is a small step. step. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but collectively though, right? I mean, in the this will be in April, and so within the first four months of the year, we'll have the first soft landing on the far side of the moon, the first landing on the near side, or mm. on any side by a commercial enterprise, and so well, the first, the fir- not only the first landing on the moon, but the first landing on any body other than Earth by a commercial entity. That's true, yeah. So, of course, Bereshit was originally designed to fulfill the Google Lunar X Prize, which they ended up canceling. Ah, I, it kind of bugs me that they ended up can I mean, I know that they had extended it, so... Uh, okay, real quick, Sam in the chat says, not the first commercial moon mission. Correct, the first commercial moon landing. Landing. Good point to make. But, you know, uh, we can argue all day whether the Google Lunar X Prize was... Uh, deserved to be canceled. I mean, it got delayed so many times, but we're finally there. Okay, so Bereshit is no longer fulfilling the Google Lunar X Prize because that's not a thing anymore. So to complete the Google Lunar X Prize, you had to land and then translate like half a kilometer or something. And some people were going to do it with a rover. Space IL was going to do it by doing a hop where they you know, light up the descent engine and and land. By the way, the descent engine is also the engine that they're using for all of their maneuvers in space. So this is a direct to lunar surface vehicle. They're not doing any staging after they have been put in orbit by SpaceX. But anyway, since since they're not doing the Google Lunar X Prize, they're not doing a hop, which bums me out so much because this thing is only Mm going to last on the surface for a couple of days. Like it's really not designed to be there for very long. And they don't want to spoil things by, you know, potentially doing a dangerous hop. And I think they should. Exactly. I don't understand the logic. I mean, it once once you get, you know, you're kind of your mission is going to yeah. be done and complete, then just fine. Let's just hop and see and see what happens. Yeah. It's okay if it's a failure. Like right? that's totally okay. But uh, oh well, maybe oh, they'll change their mind. Uh, I doubt it, but but maybe. Maybe. So the the Falcon 9 booster that put this into orbit, this is going to be used for the in-flight abort test. It's going to be coming up, I think, in April, right? Yep. And this is the one that's going to be the fourth flight, I believe, which is a new record or will be a new record, which, I mean, that makes sense because the in-flight abort test is most likely going to ruin that first stage where they're not even planning on recovering it. So one way or the other, it's not coming back. Well, the quote from Elon is there's a high likelihood of it being destroyed. So apparently there's some <laughs> some possibility it's not going to get destroyed. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that's probably just him speaking colloquially. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I guess I, it might not be destroyed, but they're not going to attempt a landing, I guess. is a, yeah. That's probably a better way of putting I, it. I think he means destroyed in flight as opposed to destroyed when it slams into the ocean. Right. The first stage, this is an abort scenario, so obviously there are things that are more important than recovering the first stage. But when you think about it, that would be very hard to do. Well, because, heck, uh, Blue Origin did it. Yeah, but that was just a suborbital. I mean, that was not nearly as difficult, you know. And even then, they got kind of lucky because they didn't expect it to actually survive. I think that they were all kind of surprised about that. Yeah, hmm. pleasantly surprised, I mean. Yeah, but having that first stage take that hit from those super Dracos, and then obviously, you know, the aerodynamics change very suddenly, and, it, and it's going Mach 5 or whatever it is, and it has to, I don't know. I would say that it would be miraculous if it could come back in this brings up the question i know that they're not trying to land but is this going to be launched with the legs because they should be trying to replicate the conditions i wonder if they're gonna if they're gonna strip those off um same in the chat says uh the blue origin abort was basically a normal flight profile but the in-flight abort trajectory for spacex is incompatible 
with reaching the land pad or an ASDS. So I, I didn't realize that, that it was a particularly weird trajectory, but I guess it makes sense because they're going to want to um, stay near the shore. Okay, so we did we did a little bit of research. Uh, jump cut, did a little bit of research. This is really cool. So yes, um, they're not going to be able to recover the booster because it's in like a blackout zone, but the trajectory that they're flying is a nominal ISS trajectory. It's just they're doing it at a different azimuth. So they're pointing in a different direction horizontally. But the thing is that they can't even attempt to recover the booster because if you, you know, shut down at max Q, you're kind of in this area where you don't have enough room to actually recover the vehicle. Plus, with the abort, the booster becomes uncontrollable, probably mostly just due to uh, aerodynamics. Mm -hmm. um, and, you you know, you don't want to be executing anti-collision burns and reorientation burns with crew on a parachute <laughs> right next to you. It's not a good idea. Uh, but yeah, so that's the fate of this booster. This booster put something on the moon and is going to put people safely in the water. Yeah, and it's going to set that record for the fourth flight, which I suppose this is the reason why they're going to use this booster in particular is because it has had three previous flights and so i guess you wouldn't want to use a brand new one you know because mm -hmm. it's not going to be recoverable got a bit of a reliability factor yeah well and elon musk i mean speaking of reliability in the same tweet he's saying that he thinks that 20 or 30 missions will become the norm for falcon 9 block 5 uh cores which is a very high number <laughs> well so in the tweet to me it sounds like he's saying or possibly saying 20 or 30 missions for Falcon 9 like as a rocket program because then Starship will take over. But, I mean, maybe Starship's not that close. Uh, I don't know. But it's, I mean, he's saying before Falcon 9 fleet reaches end of life. So it, it sounds like maybe they want to stop building Falcon 9s at some point. I don't know. Mm -hmm. That's that's interesting. Yeah, because okay. that, that would make sense because if he's talking about, yeah, well, this one's going to get nixed from the abort test, but we still got 20 or 30 more Falcon 9 missions. All right. That would that would be more program a more programmatic kind of yeah. reading. Pro programmatic? <laughs> programmatic, yeah. That's just how I read it because, I mean, I thought the same thing, 20 or 30 missions. I wish that were true, but do you think Block 5 could do 20 or 30 missions per stage? I, I That seems pretty unreasonable to me. So I'm thinking, because how many are, are they doing in a year now? Like about 18, something like that? Or is it less than that? Or more than that? Geez, I don't remember. Because, I mean, Starship's going to take over... Well, before F9 fleet reaches the end of life, he says, but 20 or 30 missions total, if that is what he means, for any Falcon 9, Block 5, just 20 or 30 missions left, and then Starship takes over, that would yeah. mean to me that, you know, by like next year, year. Starship uh -huh. takes over. Yeah, which, which is not going to happen. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, huh. One can hope, but... Yeah, uh, 2018 was 20 missions, right? I don't remember. It was somewhere right around there, yeah. Well, thank you for having a different perspective on that. Not that it's a choice that you made, but that's <laughs> that was good to see that from and a that different did perspective. That did help clarify things. It's an ambiguous tweet, Elon. Right. When is that going to stop? Okay, let's do three short and sweets, our typical three. So what's our first one? Despite issues, Soyuz successfully deploys EgyptSat-A. Amidst confusing reports from Roscosmos, on Thursday, Russia's first launch of 2019 suffered a third stage or early frigate stage anomaly while carrying the EgyptSat-A spacecraft to sun-synchronous orbit. The Soyuz 2-1B uses an RD-0124 engine for a third stage 4.5 minute burn, followed by a frigate stage. While the satellite was initially placed lower than intended, a longer frigate burn was able to compensate and the satellite is now in its proper orbit. 
This anomaly has resulted in delays to two upcoming Soyuz launches. And next up, another successful test flight for Virgin Galactic. Delayed two days by high winds, the VSS Unity carried out another successful flight to the edge of space. However, this time it was revealed only after takeoff that a third passenger, Virgin Galactic's chief astronaut instructor Beth Moses, was on board. Uh, the VSS Unity performed a full-duration engine burn, reaching a new record speed of Mach 3.04 and carrying the spacecraft to nearly 90 kilometers. During the roughly 5 minutes of zero-g, Beth Moses was able to unstrap and float freely in order to validate data previously collected by sensors. From there, Unity made a successful re-entry and landing. So they have a first time with a third passenger. That's Pretty neat. I was going to say, was there any video for that? or just? Uh, I haven't seen it. I'm sure they have video, but they, I don't think they've released it. And last, Hayabusa 2's first sampling exclamation mark. JAXA's Hayabusa 2 spacecraft, in orbit around asteroid Ryugu since mid-2018, has performed one of its key mission objectives, the first of potentially three sample collections from the surface. Orienting the spacecraft for sampling meant no communications could be received during the procedure, which was carried out successfully. And now mission team members are waiting for confirmation that the material was actually collected. While a video showing a terrestrial sampling test has circulated online, no video of the actual spacecraft sampling has yet been released. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and hoodies. <laughs> we have a hoodie here. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is so good. So uh, I got to tell you guys, I tried to get you a discount code for this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's a guy on Reddit. He has an Etsy store called Big Effect Props, and he previously made a leather jacket that looks like the SpaceX uh, Starman flight suit. He's now come up with a design for a, uh, a sweatshirt with a removable hood and oh my gosh it looks so good it's obviously very futuristic but uh you know it's not like you're gonna really stand out as somebody wearing a spacesuit it's so good uh it's 95 bucks on etsy i'm talking to him i i messaged him too late at night but uh maybe we can get a discount code next time or maybe we can have him come on and talk about the process of of building this or something but oh my gosh it looks so good you guys have to go check it out yeah so these are cool looking hoodies i really like them and i don't own a hoodie but mm -hmm. ben has maybe convinced me because they are detachable so you don't have to wear the hood and it does kind of look good like it's not over the top like it doesn't look in fact i don't even think it says spacex anywhere no, on it's there. just black and white yeah, yeah it, it is it is subtle black and white with black elbow patches in all the right places to make it kind of look like that starman suit yeah. yeah some good some good seams on it it's very very cool go check it out and then the other thing is i wanted to remind everybody we have an rpg night coming up next week so next week is also episode 200 and then that so 200 comes out on tuesday and then friday night we're going to be doing the rpg night uh 7 p.m pacific uh other times in other time zones it's going to be good if you are a $5 and up Patreon supporter, come join us. If you, again, I'll say it again. If you just want to join Patreon for a month and pay $5 and get into the RPG night, uh, definitely, definitely do that. It's going to be so much fun. You don't need any experience. And so that is March 8th. So actually that's not after this upcoming episode. That's after right. episode 200 comes right. out on Two, yes. the 5th and then on the 8th. Oh, yeah, just to be yeah, clear. Not, not this Friday, it's next Friday.
we have back with us Aaron Cross, and you were on the show not too long ago talking about, I believe, combustion instability, right? Yep, that's correct. So now we're going to talk about unstable combustibles. Like, would you say that they're unstable? <laughs> not particularly. Okay. Not the good ones aren't. <laughs> no, there, there's there's no relation here. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to do a what's it called the chiasmus. Yeah, uh, oh, you can it look it up if you don't know what has to do with rockets. Yeah, if you don't know what that is. Well, no, a chiasmus <laughs> is just a little rhetorical device. Anyway, hypergolic fuels. Uh, to me, these are the scary ones because they're hypergolic. They're generally toxic, and they seem to me to be unstable, but I guess that's obviously not true. It's just they're unstable if you put them in contact with one another because that's what they're meant to do. <laughs> that's kind that's of, kind of the whole point. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right, so where do we begin here? All right, well, I mean, I guess we can start with, I mean, you sort of gave a, a brief definition of, of hypergolics, which is they ignite on contact with each other. So that's that's a good place to start. Okay. Um, another good place to, to or another good thing to throw in there is that um, they're, they ignite very reliably um, with each other. So because they're, they're reliable, um, it eliminates the need for more complex ignition systems um, in rocket engines, which is really important if you're looking to ignite something while you're in space. Um, if you're on the ground, you have a little bit more leeway, but in, in space, you want something that will go the first time. Um, they also have fairly good performance. Um, I'm not going to go through all the numbers for the combinations, but in general, vacuum-specific impulse is is between 330 and 340 uh, seconds, 330, 340 seconds. Um, they're liquid, which means that you can throttle them, which is good for controllability. And the big deal about hypergolics is that they're storable. And because they're storable, um, you don't have to refrigerate them or keep them in a particularly compressed state. Um, so this is why we use them because even though the hypergolics that we commonly use are toxic, they are storable. So they last a long time in a very, I'm not going to say inert state, but hmm. in a state that doesn't require much maintenance. Um, so a lot of our military missiles, our silo-based military missiles, are hypergolic-based. Some common hypergolic combinations, I'm sure everybody's fairly familiar with this, um, but the oxidizers tend to be derivatives of nitrogen tetroxide, and the fuels tend to be derivatives of hydrazine. So for nitrogen tetroxide, it's actually dinitrogen tetroxide, um, but we get lazy this is kind of a theme. We get lazy and we, <laughs> uh, I guess, with our prior conversation before we started recording. So, But it's actually dinitrogen tetroxide. You have two nitrogens and four um, oxygens. And the way these are configured are they're two nitrogen dioxide molecules and they're bonded together at the nitrogens. But we shorten this to nitrogen tetroxide or NTO just for convenience. It's an extremely strong oxidizer because it is a very strong acid and as such it's very corrosive. It's also toxic. In the liquid phase it's really quite storable. Um, it's kind of a pretty green mad scientist liquid. Um, when you it gets into the gaseous phase, which it is at standard temperature and pressure, it um, is kind of a scary reddish brown color. And the reason for this is because it exists, NTO, exists in equilibrium with uh, nitrogen dioxide. So depending on your ambient pressure, um, you have more or less liquid NTO and gas, uh, the, the red scary nitrogen dioxide. So it 
depending on, on your, your ambient pressure, um, that, that content is going to vary. Um, I think we have, there's a couple of variants. There's red fuming nitric acid, RFNA. There's also, interestingly, white fuming nitric acid. Um, and then there's IRFNA, which is IA, IRFNA. Um, RFNA is red fuming nitric acid. Um, which is about 84% nitric acid, so there's an H thrown onto, you have uh, HNO3, 13% uh, NTO, and a little bit of water in there. Um, it is usually used with an inhibitor um, because it's hard to store. Um, interestingly, we use hydrogen fluoride <laughs> as a, an inhibitor. Um, but uh, it's it's kind of hard to store. It'll attack most container materials, so you put that's why the inhibitor is put in there, and you get IRFNA, which makes it a little easier to say because you can just call it IRFNA. And then the last thing we probably want to discuss in relation to nit uh, nitrogen tetroxide is my second favorite acronym in rockets. Mm -hmm. I think I discussed my first one last time. My second favorite one is ABFRC, which is a big red cloud. <laughs> okay, yeah, I think you skipped a letter, but... I, I, I did, but that F does not stand for Falcon. <laughs> Just going to put that in gotcha. there. All right, and what I did is uh, I, I stuck a video link in here, and I'm hoping Ben will put up that up with the show notes, mm -hmm. but it's a video of a Proton-M rocket gone wrong. So this is a hypergolic-fueled rocket on the first stage. You can see it start to take off, and then it crashes, and you see the aforementioned BF BFRC. Um, some side effects of releasing um, nitrogen dioxide into the atmosphere can include acid rain. So it's, it's not a very friendly thing to have floating around your mm. rocket launch site. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more, I think, later about um, ways that, that people are trying to reduce the toxicity and, and control um, both of these fuels a little bit better in terms of the environmental effects. Um, fuels, they're, again, hi mostly hydrazine derivatives. Um, all of the common ones in use today are. Um, hydrazine is two N's and four H's. So you, and the, the hydrogen part of that becomes the fuel. Hydrazine's also toxic. Um, it's a very strong base. And in the state of California, it's carcinogenic, but you know, most things are. Mm. Um, so we're <laughs> not entirely sure about um, how, how cancer-causing it is, but uh, it's, it's possible. Um, interestingly, hydrazine was first used as a propellant in the Second World War. It was a fuel for the Messerschmitt 163B fighter. So they mixed it with methanol and water, and they called it sea stuff. Um, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, but stuff just means uh, substance or fuel or just stuff. So it was substance C. Um, the oxidizer, by the way, was hydrogen peroxide, which is hypergolic with, um, with hydrazine. And just sort of as a side note, I don't know if you want to throw this in there or not, but uh, they initially referred to pure hydrazine as B stuff, but later on they called an ethanol water mixture B stuff, so depending on who you talk to, they'll think it means some different things. So hydrazine decomposes at elevated temperatures into ammonia, hydrogen, and nitrogen. At room temperature, it stays hydrazine unless you push it through a catalyst. And uh, we do use catalysts in some of our thrusters. So we'll, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Uh, monomethyl hydrazine is hydrazine um, with a methyl group uh, replacing one of those hydrogen atoms. 
So it's CH3 and 2H3. In monomethyl hydrazine, it is more chemically stable than hydrazine, so that is, is nicer. Um, one of the big things about it is that the freezing point is 50 degrees Celsius lower than that of uh, hydrazine, which is good. Um, hydrazine's freezing point is about one degree C, so it's right at that freezing temperature of water. So if you're using this thing in a, especially a missile on the battlefield, and it gets pretty cold, you want to make sure that you're still able to launch your missile, it hasn't frozen. Um, so if you use MMH, um, you're going to assure uh, operability at, at around freezing condition or at around water freezing conditions. UDMH, um, which I think is a favorite with at least one of our listeners, <laughs> um, <laughs> UDMH uh, is unsymmetrical dimethylhydrazine. So uh, it has two methyl groups on it. I was looking to see why UDMH is more popular than MMH as a fuel. Um, turned up an interesting book, which may not be new to some people. Um, it's called Ignition, an informal history of liquid rocket propellants. Um, it's a little bit, the writing's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Um, I'd love oh, to get yeah. a longer look at the book. Yeah, tongue-in-cheek um, is a great way to it, put it. <laughs> it looks like a, a fantastic read. I have not read the whole thing. So, Aaron, let me let me give you a little bit of background on this. We actually are partially responsible for the fact that it's now an audiobook. And we're also partially responsible for the fact that it is now back in print. So, you know, it came up as a fantastic book to read in a book club, which we did ages ago and then stopped because it was way too much work. <laughs> um, and it was like the first or second book we we read and um, we actually worked on getting it turned into an audiobook. One of our listeners turned out to own the rights to make it an audiobook. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, so we were going to get a bunch of different rocket engineers to read different chapters, and that just ended up not working out very well. So we ended up letting the rights uh, get sold back uh, to Rutgers, and they produced they produced the audiobook. But I'm pretty sure they put it back into print because of all of the interest that we generated. Yeah, because it, it was kind of a big coincidence because it had been out of print for some yeah. time, and then just around that time, suddenly, yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. I noticed it was um, an, an older book, but the uh, reference that I have for it is a 2018 yeah. uh, print date. That's 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 great. That, that's like a ti our tiniest. Uh, bit of claim to fame is like, hey, <laughs> yeah. we might have actually been involved with getting this book. Uh, That's great. But to uh, to close the circle, we'll bring back some information from that book. Um, the author John Drury Clark was was involved in some of the the testing of of uh, hypergolics back in the day uh, in about the 1950s. It looks like so they were choosing between MMH and UDMH. Um, UDMH was less liable to catalytic decomposition than MMH, and it was thermally stable, so they could use it for regenerative cooling in rockets, which is a nice plus when you use your fuel for, for cooling the combustion chamber. And he notes that in the end, um, they were almost pretty much neck and neck when it came down to choice between MMH and UDMH, but it really came down to cost. The production cost for UDMH was cheaper. Um, one thing that I, I did want to address, not because we as, as a community know all the answers, but it's an interesting question, is how does ignition actually happen with standard hypergolics? So the, we, we generally know that, you know, if you stick a fuel and an oxidizer together and they're hypergolic, they'll ignite. But what are the mechanisms behind that? Um, and, and how is this happening? 
So we know the what, but do we know the why? Um, so I, I've posted a, a link, um, which is a link to a website at Purdue. Actually, the lab that I was part of as a, a graduate student, um, where I did my master's degree. Um, so there's a video on this page. Um, it's a video of a drop of RFNA um, dropping into a pool of MMH. And so if you watch the video, there's there's kind of a creepy eyelid opening and closing mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. on the side, but it's just to make the point that all of this happens in the blink of an eye. But when you watch that drop of RFNA go into the pool of fuel, you see the ignition happen and it flips the vial up into the air and it's very dramatic, but it, it's it's fire happening, so it's it's exciting. <laughs> Basically, this is just um, ignition on a droplet scale, what that looks like. Now, one of my lab mates actually published a paper um, on MMH and RFNA ignition, where he was dropping MMH drops into RFNA pools. And he noted that when he did this, what he observed was um, there were explosion events that were uh, happening before there was actual ignition. So uh, there would be these explosions happening. He did this with a high-speed camera. So you'd see explosions from the drops of MMH, and they would throw off um, smaller droplets. And hmm. the smaller droplets would vaporize very rapidly, and those would be the ignition kernels. So just to emphasize that we never see combustion coming directly off of a liquid. I'm going to phrase this very carefully. When it looks like a drop of liquid is burning, what is actually burning is the gas that is vaporizing from that drop of liquid. So the the flame sheet is at the meeting point of the surrounding oxidizing atmosphere and the vaporous fuel that's coming off of the droplet. And this this is true for anything. Yeah, so I was I was actually wondering that when I watched the the drop is I know that like, you know, gasoline and oxygen only burns when the gasoline is vaporized. Um, so if you were to somehow be able to combine them in a liquid state or maybe like combine them under oil or something, would they vaporize and then ignite or like what, what would happen there? Do you know? It depends on what the surrounding temperature and pressure are. If you have a, if you are in a, I don't know, let's say a deep freeze, cold enough that you have liquid oxygen and you combine your liquid oxygen with liquid gasoline, nothing's going to happen um, because what needs to happen is your fuel and your oxidizer need to be, they need to have a certain activation energy. Uh, it's not exactly activation energy, but uh, it's called the heat of combustion. But they need to possess a certain amount of energy in order for that um, exothermic reaction to start happening. And that's when it's in a gaseous state because gases have more energy, right? So, so when they possess that amount of energy, they will almost by default be in that gaseous state. Okay, yeah, I, I got it reversed. Yeah, I think I, I had that cartoon kind of picture of, well, if it's gaseous, each molecule has more kinetic energy and cruising right. around more, and so, yeah. Right, and then I, I think the following question is, well, wood burns, what is a solid? What's happening there? Mm. Um, and so what's actually happening with wood is you, you heat up the wood through your ignition process, either by a smaller flame or, I don't know, whatever you're using to start your fire. You heat up your wood enough that um, fuel-containing gases um, start moving up through the carbon matrix of the wood. So you're actually burning the gases that are being generated by, by vaporizing components of, of your wood. 
Alrighty. Well, um, let's see. So we talked about the ignition of liquid um, MMH and, well, quote unquote liquid and MMH. <laughs> I, I went to a lot of time to emphasize <laughs> that it's not actually liquid. Um, so when you combine MMH and NTO initially in, in a gaseous state, um, it's interesting um, in that you can see that hypergolic reaction happening, but it seems to be too two stages. So the first stage is your um, gaseous MMH and TO come into contact and start producing um, a, a whitish sort of fog. And they're not ignited yet, but there's this glowing fog. And at that point, then you start seeing a more localized, more intense area of, of photon generation, which is probably the actual ignition kernel. And, and I actually saw this in my own work as well, um, where you have sort of a, a glowing area that's kind of hard to tell whether it's actually ignited or not. Um, there are a lot of proposed models, uh, a lot of proposed chemistry models that um, are applicable over some ranges, but we as a scientific community really don't have a one-shot one and done answer for how how this happens. We just have more detailed observations. Hmm. Um, so I'm going to quote from a review paper um, from from a group that was put out over the past couple of years, and they say although molecular dynamics studies and quantum chemistry are capable of explaining in part the processes and chemical reactions that take place in the hypergolic reactions of hydrazines, these models are not yet capable of accurately predicting performance characteristics such as specific impulse, ignition delay, etc., or recommending potential hypergolic components. So, long story short, we do have some idea of the basic processes of ignition, but there are a lot of details that we're unclear on and we can make some educated guesses but we don't have a complete idea of what's what's actually happening in every instance that's really exciting yeah, that's kind <laughs> of surprising. Um, one other interesting thing to note um, is the flame structure of mmh and nto or actually the um, nto and, and hydrazines in general it's actually a dual flame so when you look at a burning droplet you see uh, an outer flame and an inner flame surrounding each other as a the inner flame um, is actually a decomposition flame so it is light emitted only by the hydrazine decomposing into ammonia and other components and then the second outer flame is actually i don't know if we would call it quote unquote the, the real flame but it's the oxidation flame so hmm. it's the flame produced by the fuel and the oxidizer and uh i did some a shameless self-promotion there and linked my own thesis because come on whoever is going to read that <laughs> so awesome. it might as well be good for something all right um i guess jumping off of that i i did mention that that was part of my master's work um so one thing that might be kind of interesting to talk about is how it is how hypergolics are handled um in a laboratory setting um, and this isn't necessarily how they're handled um, when you're loading and unloading propellant from a rocket, but it hopefully will give you an idea of the precautions um, that have to be thought about. Sorry, the, the hazards that have to be thought about. <clears throat> so I, uh, I was a member of the Gelled Propellants Laboratory at Purdue University um, for my master's work. Um, this was part of a multi-university research initiative 
funded by the Army Research Lab, and the focus was actually on gelled hypergolics, and we can discuss that more in, in a few minutes. So the facilities are, are pretty special because of the safety hazards of paramount importance are is airflow through the room. So how quickly can you vent mm. the atmosphere in the room um, if you accidentally release something into it? And uh, the venting and airflow replacement in that room is designed to replace the air in a matter of minutes. It's like one or two minutes. Um, the room's also negatively pressurized um, so that everything stays in the room and that you don't you don't push anything nasty out of out of the room into the surrounding building. But there are three fume hoods. There's a fuel fume hood, there's an oxidizer fume hood, and there's a main fume hood. So there's a lot of effort made to keep the fuel and oxidizer very separate. So there's separate tools, separate glassware, separate gloves. You never want tools from one side of the from the fuel side of the room to go over onto the oxidizer room. You can sort of imagine what would happen if you had uh, you know fuel left on a wrench and you touched it to you know some some wrench with an oxidizer on it on the other side. Mm -hmm. Things would get exciting. And then in the main fume hood, uh, there's actually an N2 dry, uh, nitrogen dry box um, to handle the hydrazine inside because uh, the hydrazine does start decomposing when it comes into contact with oxygen. So it's handled in a dry box. And when you actually go into the room, um, there's a fairly intensive PPE, personal protective equipment, donning process. Um, so before you even go into the room, there's a badge that you put on that will monitor how much hydrazine you're exposed to if there's any leaks. Um, you put on nitrile gloves and safety glasses. That's pretty standard. Once you get into the lab, there's a chemical resistant jumpsuit that you put on with a hood. Um, so then you start feeling all, uh, all sciency, <laughs> and there are giant rubber overshoes which do not feel sciency. <laughs> they feel like a clown. Um, so, um, and then there's also a, a personal monitor for um, uh, nitrogen or nitrous oxide. When you handle a fuel or oxidizer, there are chemical resistant gloves that you put over the nitrile gloves. There's face shields. And then when you're actually working with hydrazine in the dry box, you end up having three sets of gloves on, which kind of makes you feel like an astronaut, but it's also kind of annoying. <laughs> um, so that's just sort of an idea of, of what, what you actually go through when, you, when you're handling, um, handling hydrazine and NTO on, on a laboratory setting. But hopefully it gives you an idea of, of how, how concerned um, you need to get yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> about the toxicity of, of these fuels. I got to say, I, I love like exactly what you were just talking about. This kind of behind the scenes, like what's it really like? I just love that look mm -hmm. into things. I agree. That's so cool. All right. Well, I looked up a couple of, uh, I guess, more current vehicles to talk about about these fuels with. Um, I know last time I did a data relay, we talked about the Saturn V primarily, so uh, I, th I figured we'd go a little more contemporary. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk first um, about hydrazine and orientation thrusters as a monopropellant. So it can be used just as a monopropellant. We use it as a monopropellant uh, by running it over a catalyst. So when you run it over a catalyst, it decomposes exothermically, it gives off heat, and it decomposes into nitrogen ammonia and nitrogen. And once it gets hot enough, then you don't really need the catalyst anymore. It becomes self-sustaining. And then when hypergolics are used in orientation thrusters as a bipropellant, it's pretty simple. 
they react or they inject hydrazine and NTO into the reaction chamber and it ignites and they eject it through a nozzle. It's very simple, very reliable. Most often they're part of a blowdown system, so they'll pressurize the tanks. The other option is to have a pump-fed system. Um, so performance does improve a little bit if you have a pump-fed system. Um, the space shuttle uh, orbital and maneuvering engines were changed from a blowdown to a pump-fed system, and as a result, they moved from an ISP of uh, 316 seconds to 334 seconds. But generally, the complexity of the pumps is is really a deterrent to gaining another you know, 20 seconds of ISP. So I thought we'd talk about James Webb Space Telescope. Um, it hasn't yet launched, of course, um, but it has actually both systems on it. So there's a monopropellant system and a bipropellant system, and they come off of the same tanks. Um, their blowdown systems are pressurized with helium. The bipropellant system is known as the Secondary Combustion Augmented Thrusters, or SCAT. They're hydrazine and dinitrogen tetroxide. Um, so they actually have two pairs of SCATs. Um, one is for mid-course correction one, and the other is for mid-course correction two. And in each pair, um, you have a primary and then you have a backup. So in your pair, only one of those thrusters are firing, um, but the other one is there on a separate fuel circuit um, in case the first one fails. The reason that there are two pairs of SCATs instead of just one is that in between mid-course correction 1B and 2, the sun shield is deployed, which changes the center of mass of the telescope. So it's interesting because the, the SCATs for the MCC 1A and B, it's actually split into two, two maneuvers, but they're located kind of near the center of the bottom of the spacecraft bus, um, whereas the Thrusters for MCC-2 are hung out on a boom um, a little bit uh, opposite the solar array. So if you see if you see thrusters hanging out on an arm, that's, they're out there because uh, the sun shield deployment changes the center of mass. Hmm. I think we talked about this before, right? Oh, really? No, this sounds new to me. I don't know if it was regarding JWST, but there was at least some other spacecraft where they had two sets of thrusters. They were that had been positioned because they had to deploy an antenna or something mm. and that, you know, change the center of mass. I don't know if it was the space telescope, but mm. it was something. I mean, this sounds very familiar to me, but I don't recall exactly what it was. <laughs> We've done too many shows. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I put a reference or two um, in, in the notes there that you can check out. Um, for, for more details, there's a couple of pictures um, or diagrams showing where those are located. Um, also a diagram of how the, the fuel circuits are, are run for the bipropellant and monopropellant systems. Uh, the monopropellant, uh, there are actually eight what they're called dual thruster modules. Um, so there's a primary and a backup. So they're one pound force thrusters. Um, they're used hydrazine only and they're used for both attitude control and then momentum unloading of the reaction wheels, which is another interesting rabbit trail that we could mm -hmm. follow, um, is the unloading of the reaction wheels. I think actually um, you mentioned something along those lines maybe two episodes, two or three episodes ago. Anyway, back to these thrusters. Uh, there's two sets. There's four that are used for um, pitch and roll, and then there's four that are used for yaw control. There is nominally enough propellant on JWST for a 10 and a half year mission, um, but of course we'll have to see um, once, once it actually starts uh, operating. 
how, how long those are predicted to be. I wanted to talk about orbital stages as well. Um, this is where hypergolics really shines. Well, I, I guess I shouldn't say that because we use them a lot on thrusters, but uh, hy hypergolics uh, are, are used not as, they're, they're, they're useful on orbital stages. Um, the Ariane 5 currently operates in two configurations. Um, there's the Ariane 5 ECA, which is a cryogenic uh, stage, or a cry it has a cryogenic second stage. And then the Ariane 5 ES has a hypergolic second stage. Um, so the ES stands for uh, I'm going to butcher the French, but it's uh, Evolution Stockable, or Stockable. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, this actually, there are a lot of, there are a couple different languages in here, and I'm, I just, I'm apologizing in uh, advance for any, anything that I say that is not correctly pronounced. <laughs> um, but the storable propellant stage is the EPS, which is Etage Propagal Stockable, um, which is 10 metric tons of propellant, so it's MMH and NTO. And the engine is the Estes engine, uh, 6,000 pounds of thrust or 27,000 kilonewtons. It looks pretty stubby. They tried to keep the length of the stage down. So the ox, there's two ox tanks, two fuel tanks. They ride right around the engine. It's uh, pressure fed uh, with helium. And the injector in the rocket engine is, uh, it's, it's got multiple injectors in, in that injector plate. Um, it's a swirl coaxial injector. So what that means is that um, there's an outer fluid and an inner fluid injected around each other. So the outer fluid is in an annulus around that, that inner fluid and the outer fluid also has a swirl imparted to it. So it's it's called swirl coaxial. Hmm. Um, the ox-fuel ratio is slightly above two. The ignition is accomplished by um, opening first the NTO main valve and then the MMH valve. Um, when they shut down, they turn off the MMH first and then they turn off the NTO. And they also purge it with helium before and after um, they actually flow fuel through there just to clean out the lines. Is that something they do because it leaves any kind of residue? I, I think when when you're working with fuel in general, um, I, I, I think, sorry, I, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the it's, short answer. It, it's pretty standard um, to purge when you're working with, with different types of fuel. Is mm -hmm. You, you, you want to clean stuff out. Because I was just thinking, because I don't know if we had talked about that yet, um, like what kind of a byproduct do you get? Like do you get coking? what's left over. Right. Coking's more of a problem when you have a carbon-based fuel. Mm -hmm. um, That's a good point. Yeah, this is definitely... But uh, NTO, I mean, your residuals, if, if you're cold enough, you can still have drops of liquid hanging around. And then MMH, again, I, I think it's, it's a, you know, bits of it hanging around problem. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't want a situation where you have some MMH left in the line mm -hmm. and then you, you know, flow oxidizer through it. Um, right. Yeah. That's really not ideal that's a that's a very polite way to talk about potential explosions <laughs> well, yes but that that was also kind of a stupid statement because you wouldn't actually flow them through the same right. line at any point yeah, yeah. so okay but just forget i said well that. right but you know yeah it's I, I think the the i think the dangers of having you know materials that you need three layers of gloves to work with just floating around your spacecraft like i think that's mm -hmm. it's pretty right. obvious why that's a bad idea um let's see a little bit more on the estes engine it's regeneratively cooled with mmh um so they they run the mmh around the around the combustor 
through through pipes that are composing the walls of the combustor to, to cool it off um, for the chamber and also the throat, the upstream part of the nozzle. And as with most uh, vacuum stages, the rest of the nozzle is radiatively cooled. Now the, the main benefit that hypergolics bring to this is that they allow reignition um, and long coast phases. So this is especially important um, as the Ariane 5 uh, is or the Ariane 5 delivers the uh, Galileo cluster of satellites. This is Europe's new satellite navigation system. They started launching it in 2016. Um, what the Ariane 5 does is it releases the satellites in a set sequence and then it relights the engine and goes into a graveyard orbit. Um, the last thing I, the last vehicle I wanted to discuss, the last engine I wanted to discuss was an engine for a launch vehicle, um, which is supposed to be launching sometime soon. The Vikas engine uh, is used on both India's PSLV and GSLV core stages. Um, PSLV is the Polar Satellite Launch Vehicle. GSLV is the Geosynchronous Satellite Launch Vehicle. GSLV Mark III, which is India's most powerful rocket, is supposed to launch sometime in April. I think that the launch has been getting pushed back a little bit. I think initially when I started writing this, it was supposed to launch sometime in February. Mm. <laughs> um, but it will launch with Chandrayaan-2, which is uh, India's moon mission, next moon mission. The GSLV Mark III is a three-stage heavy lift launch vehicle uh, developed by ISRO, ISRO, um, the Indian Space Agency. So stage one is two solid strap-on boosters. Um, stage two is a liquid hypergolic booster, which has two Vikas engines, their NTO and UDMH. And then the third stage is cryogenics. And I believe on the Mark III, it's the indigenous cryogenic engine, um, which is ICE. I'm, I'm sure somebody out there will start making some sort of rap mashup with Ice Ice Baby. <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> Let's hope not. All right. The, the idea started here then. Um, <laughs> the, the GSLV launch um, basically looks like uh, the, the solid boosters initiating liftoff. They function for 140 seconds. Be just before they shut off at 114 seconds, the Vikas engines light up um, and they continue to function for about three minutes. The second stage Stage separates uh, at T plus five minutes and 20 seconds, and then the third stage takes over, um, which is a liquid hydrogen and LOX stage. Payload to LEO is 8,000 kilograms, and payload to geosynchronous transfer orbit is um, 4,000 kilograms. So it places itself, I believe, in the Falcon 9 competitor category, um, if you want to think of it that way. Um, Vikas has an interesting history. There have been about six variants, as far as I can tell. Um, the most recent engine is, is used on the GSLV Mark III. It's the high-thrust Vikas engine, HTVE. And as tested um, on a test stand, I think last year in the summer, a 119-second burn. So it's it's very respectable. Um, the Vikas engine was named after, let me see if I can pronounce his name correctly, uh, Vikram Ambalal Sarabhai, um, who is regarded as the father of the Indian space program. Now there's an interesting, I'll make another book recommendation, <laughs> an interesting book. It's available free on ebook uh, from the Indian Space Agency edited 
by P.V. Rao. It's called From Fishing Hamlet to Red Planet, India's Space Journey. And this is, they uh, had various engineers on the program contribute chapters to this this book. It's sort of a history of the Indian space program. So apparently vikas in Sanskrit also means development and also perhaps flowering. So it's it's a very it's a it's a word with a number of different connotations. Um, it's also a portmanteau of, of Vikram Ambalal Sarabhai. Oh, Sam's got an interesting point. Vikas is closely related to the Viking engine from Ariens yes. 1 through 4. To build on that point, there was an agreement in 1974 uh, between ISRO and the French Space Agency. So the agreement was that ISRO would supply 10,000, or uh, another author, so 7,000, um, but they would supply 10,000 space-qualified pressure transducers to the French Space Agency, CNES, and in return, France would transfer know-how for their liquid engine mm. Viking to Israel. Effectively, it's a barter. My pressure transducers for your um, liquid engine uh, plans, um, many people do refer to it as a licensing agreement. There may have been a component in that agreement as well that there would be a um, hundred man years of ISRO engineers and scientists lent out essentially to uh, to France for the Ariane vehicle launch development. So they they got in essentially very close to the ground floor of the Viking engine development. So ISRO sent a team of at least 50 scientists to France in 1974 to participate in Viking. Uh, Ariane development, and they were there for at least five years. The first Vicus engine was ready for test in 1985. Um, they didn't have the test stand in India ready yet, so they tested it in France, and uh, they first flew it on the PSLV in 1993. So it's very similar. Um, I guess we could, yeah, let's let's talk about how it's actually different from Viking, and the answer is it's not very. It's, it's basically the Viking engine. Um, the differences lie in the component suppliers. So the, the components were procured by Israel rather than CNES. So there are more Indian suppliers um, for the components. And then the burn times um, have been continually improved by Israel. Um, so they have higher burn times, um, higher specific impulse and higher thrust than the more recent Viking engines. And so how are they achieving that? Because it's still just, you know, the same hypergolic. So what are they doing differently? I would conjecture that um, the Viking engine was really used up until Ariane 4. After that, France may not have invested the money into doing more continuous improvement, whereas India is still using it. So it makes sense that they would they would look to upgrade. But I don't have a direct answer for you on what exactly they improved. That may not be something that they particularly want to share. Um, but it uses, it, the engine carries about 40 metric tons of propellant. Um, so it uses UDMH as fuel and NTO as the oxidizer. Interestingly, it also carries water as a coolant. This is very uh, rare among rocket engines. <laughs> it's carrying uh, liquid water for use as a coolant. Uh, it does carry nitrogen for valve actuation as well. There is a turbo pump in the engine. Um, it's a single turbine driving two pumps on the same shaft and the pump for water is geared down so it's not on that not on that shaft. There's a, a small part of the propellant flow that's sent to the gas generator. The products are cooled with injected water, and then they're sent to the turbine, and then also to the propellant tanks to provide some pressurization. Um, and then there's a separate exhaust off of the side of the engine for for the turbine um, after after the products have gone through the turbine. So if, if you see a kind of a 
small stubby often people put nozzles on on these sort of cycles to get a little extra thrust um, from the gas generator exhaust um, but there would be a little um, pipe or, or tube off the side where that exhaust would come out for cooling it uses uh, transpiration or uh, colloquially known as sweat cooling um, so the fuel is injected over the internal wall of the combustor some of the fuel is injected over the internal wall of the uh, combustor and nozzle um, using a porous wall material. So what is the water end up ending up cooling? Do you know? I believe the water is cooling the exhaust from the gas generator wow. so that they can push that over the turbine without melting it. Wow, that's that's so weird. I wonder how much water they end up going through. Usually you don't have to cool the exhaust from the gas generator, right? Because it's at a much lower temperature because that's... I think it depends that... on your stoichiometric ratio that you put oh, yeah, it it in the gas generator. So, you know, you may make it ox-rich or fuel-rich to, to cool it. Mm -hmm. Perhaps they didn't want to uh, lose the efficiency in the flow because usually, you know, if you do fuel lean or fuel rich... Um, you have to use excess of something. Well, I was thinking that, but then that means that they have to carry all that water. So, Yeah, I'm, I'm not exactly sure on why they made that trade-off decision. Interesting. All right, what's next in hypergolics? Um, there's two main themes here. One theme is improvement of our understanding, basic understanding of hypergolic ignition. And then the other is to reducing the toxicity of the fuels and oxidizers. So there are multiple efforts underway to build computational models of hypergolic ignition. Um, we would ultimately like to better predict uh, performance characteristics and understand how this ignition process is working. And in concert with those improvements of computational models, we need to make sure that they are correct. So you'll see advances in experimental methods that are meant to validate the computational models. In terms of reducing toxicity, that's, that's a very challenging area. Um, and there are a couple different sort of approaches that are being taken. Um, the first is just replacing the fuel and oxidizer with non-toxic fuels and, and oxidizers. Um, so there's there's a lot of work in this, this space for towards um, quote-unquote green hypergolics. Um, we know that hydrogen peroxide is hypergolic with hydrazine. Um, hydrazine is still toxic, but it seems like a good place to start. Hydrogen peroxide is also hypergolic with um, transition metal salts, so there's been some work in those areas. Hydrogen peroxide is shock sensitive, um, so you do have to be careful in handling it. It, but it's it's not toxic and it decomposes into, you know, water and, and hydrogen. So it's it's not as scary, especially in relation to NTO. Mm -hmm. There has been a successful hypergolic test firing in a small engine. Um, the fuel was a mixture of furful alcohol, ethan <laughs> <laughs> ethanol, nope. ethanol amine, and copper chloride. Um, my tongue's not working so great today, but it was hypergolic with about 70% hydrogen uh, peroxide. DMAS has been looked at as a hydrazine replacement. Unfortunately, it's not hypergolic with uh, hydrogen peroxide. So we, we have two potential repla replacements, but they don't necessarily, they're not hypergolic with one another. Another approach to reducing toxicity has been to gel hypergolics. Um, so that was something that that I was involved in. And 
basically the, the the reason that you would do this um, is if I if I went and told you I spilled grape juice on your white carpet, you you immediately jump to a bunch of conclusions, uh, including about how far that spread and how much that's going to stain and whatnot. If I told mm. you that I spilled grape jello on your carpet, you would be way less concerned because you can just pick it up and and throw it out, um, mm. and it doesn't. Uh, spread spread everywhere. So that's the same thought behind gelling hypergolics is if, if you have a handling accident, it's not as dangerous to clean up. Now, what, what's, I guess, the, the good side of this is uh, is the safety. And plus, if you have a, a non-Newtonian fluid, you'll also you'll be able to throttle this and basically treat it as a liquid once it starts flowing. Um, at the molecular level, gels are a network of solids holding pockets of liquid. Um, so you can think of it as, as kind of a solid matrix uh, which has pockets of liquid in it. There are a couple different drawbacks, however. Um, one, the main, the main drawback is that compared to a given mass of fuel or oxidizer in liquid form, when you have a gel holding this fuel or oxidizer, part of that mass doesn't contribute to your uh, combustion reaction. So you have some extraneous, extraneous mass that you have to haul around. It can also uh, absorb heat from your reaction, that extra extra molecules in there. Um, so you reduce your, your energy released. Um, there, you can use, um, there, there are different types of gelants. There are inorganic, inorganic gelants and organic gelants, um, and they react differently when you burn them in a droplet. When you use an organic gelant, it actually forms this kind of skin around the burning droplet. It's, it's pretty weird, but you'll see these bubbles appear underneath the skin and then they pop and you get a jet of it. So they're unsteady jets and they're, they're hard to predict. Um, so it makes quantification um, harder to deal with. Um, now people have also looked into using oxygen rich gelants or adding colloidal metal suspensions to the gelants to boost performance. So you at least get something out of your gelant when it's burning. Adding colloidal metal to rocket propellants is like an age old tradition, right? Like, Sure. Where, where well, it's like, adding fuel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, hey, let's put some uh, aluminum dust in there. That burns really good, you know? I mean, obviously... Pretty, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, like, obviously, there's more logic behind it, but it's like, okay, yeah, this is not... That's not as new as jellifying your propellants. I, I'm, I'm going to go off on a very <laughs> large tangent yes. here. Um, so this is more of a, a rant. This is not pertinent to the podcast at all. Um, <laughs> did you ever read the Artemis Fowl series? No. By Owen Colfer. Okay, it's, mm -hmm. it's they're gonna make a movie soon apparently, but it's def definitely more young adult. But there's advanced weaponry, and in order to make the weaponry more advanced, he relies a lot on gels. For some, gels just sounds more futuristic. For sure. It does, but you, uh, you, you do have to consider in, in this case that, that you actually are diluting right. your liquid. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. My, my rant's over. <laughs> <laughs> well, that wasn't too long. All right. Okay. The, the last way, or not the last way, but um, the last, I guess, point that I'd like to make about how people are reducing, trying to reduce toxicity um, in hypergolic propellants is that there's proposals to use hydrazine as part of a solid fuel. So then you could have sort of a hybrid rocket where you have your, uh, your oxidizer is liquid, um, but your hydrazine in solid form. So at least you, you would be uh, have, have better handling rather than using your hydrazine as a liquid, but you'd preserve your throttleability. All right. So that's, that's what I have for today. 
hope that you find it interesting. Like, this was more... Like, it's everything about Hypergolics that you didn't know you wanted to know. Yeah. <laughs> I just... I, I love this segment so much. Great. Well, it's been great talking to you guys. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you, Anne. So let's do a couple of upcoming spaceflight events, just a couple of launches. So first up is um, a Soyuz STB with a frigate upper stage, and that is delivering the OneWeb F6. So we talked about this last week, um, but this launch was actually delayed, so now it is for the 27th. And just, again, to be clear, this yeah, so this is the one that was delayed because of the recent Soyuz mishap, third stage mishap. And this is the one that, was, that would be carrying those first few satellites of that 900 microsatellite constellation for OneWeb. So yeah, still hasn't happened just yet, but we're getting there and hopefully there will be no further delays and we'll get to see these satellites put into orbit so we can have a space-based internet. So that would be neat. Um, But yeah, the new launch date is on the 27th at 2137 UTC. That looks to be instantaneous and that's uh, launching out of the Soyuz launch complex in Kourou, which is in French Guiana. And we also have a pretty big one, a pretty big launch on March 2nd, the Falcon 9 Block 5 uh, DM-1 will finally be taking place. And so this is going to be delivering 400 pounds of cargo and material and supplies to the space station and it will be uh, launching at 0748 UTC at an instantaneous launch window from uh, Launch Complex 39A at Kennedy Space Flight Center. Do you think that they're going to have the crew arm extended for this? Well, how else is the dummy going to get there, Ben? <laughs> yeah, no, they, exactly. Like they, they're probably going to install it when it's on the ground. But like, I want them to put that arm out and like just pat him on the head and say right. <laughs> so there's going to be another Starman, uh, his brother. I think this one's coming back, right? That's the idea. So yeah. this one's not going to be thrown <laughs> this, out this beyond was Mars. Not the black sheep of the dummy family. Yeah. So, yeah, so that that goes up and comes back down. Um, So we're going to have some associated events on NASA TV. Um, So they're doing a uh, a briefing uh, on February 28th, which is Thursday um, at 11 a.m. Eastern time. Then the same day at 3.30 p.m. Eastern time, they're doing another RS-25 engine test at Stennis. Then the um, rendezvous and docking of the Crew Dragon is going to happen on March 3rd, which is Sunday. Um, that'll be 3.30 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, 8.30 a.m. Eastern time is when they're going to do the hatch opening. And uh, they're calling it a Crew Dragon welcoming ceremony on ISS, uh, which is probably just them pulling out the ice cream or whatever. Uh, that'll be 10.35 a.m. Eastern Time. All this is on NASA TV. And then Crew Dragon is going to come back down on March 8th. That's Friday. Um, I believe that's after our next show, right? Yeah, that's RPG night. Oh, that is RPG night. Yeah, See, I know so... all this because it's my birthday, so I'm <laughs> very familiar with that day. <laughs> so for Dennis's birthday, uh, they're going to be bringing a Crew Dragon back home. I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and read this because it kind of all fits. 2.30 a.m., uh, very, very early in the morning. Um, and then deorbit is when they're going to undock and then deorbit and splash down coverage starts at 7.30 a.m. Uh, Eastern time, again, on March 8th. 
Yeah, and it's just important to keep in mind that this is lifting off on March 2nd, but for a lot of people, it'll be March 1st, so mm. at least oh, on the West Coast. Idea. So a better way of thinking of it is Friday night. If you're out and about Friday night, you will catch yeah. this launch perhaps after midnight at some point. Alrighty, well, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And with that, time to deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. And a big welcome to our new ADCO-level supporter, Richard Nesbitt, a name that should sound familiar if you were listening closely last week. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. Alright, so that's it, and we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See ya.